0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi I'm Jean Chatsky and welcome to Her Money. Great show for you today. Meredith Rollins, the editor in chief of Red Book magazine, is coming up. Red Book you all know is the magazine famous for helping women juggle family, career, her own needs. And uh, by the way, it is the hot title in the category. It's Adweek's Hottest Women's Magazine and won Adweek's Reader's Choice Award this year. So we're going to have a great conversation. But before we dive into it, I want to talk about something that is just bugging me. And it's a piece that I read recently in the New York Times. It talked about... Women doctors and men doctors coming out of school and how women doctors doing the exact same work with the exact same credentials, often in the exact same places, are being paid significantly less. And this story resonated with me, I think, because it's not the first time that I have seen research along these lines. Last year, there was a piece about how women grads of medical school were being paid, I believe it was 19% less. And I've seen it through the years. And wage inequality is one of those things that you hope can be explained away. You hope that as you look deeper into it, perhaps it's that women are choosing careers that don't pay as well as men or opting for greater flexibility or figuring out that they want to take a different path for personal reasons. But when it's this much of an affront, when it just stares you in the face with the data, you can't turn away because essentially what it's saying is same work, same hours, same title, same degree, less money, and it simply won't do anymore. And I was so excited when we talked to Meredith about the different topics that we would bring up on the show today. She said, we have got to talk about why women need to talk about how much money they make. And I was like,
0: yes, absolutely. Let's do that. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be here.
1: It's really, really great to have you.
0: What made you say I want to talk about this. Well, I was thinking back on sort of key moments in my own professional life, especially ones that have to do with money. And I think there were two that really stuck out to me when I was thinking about what I wanted to to speak to you about. The first was when I got my first big job in magazines. I went from being a features director at a fashion magazine to being executive editor at another fashion magazine, but it was a bigger title and more responsibility and more of a managerial job. So I knew that it was my chance to get a bump up in salary, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't know what to ask for. I was kind of working in a vacuum, and so I asked for a sum that felt like a decent raise, and... You know, it, it felt like a lot of money at the time. And then I went to my new job and about six months into it, I was privy to another hiring decision that was being made. And my then boss said, Oh, well, she's only asking for X number. We can totally give her that. And it was about $25,000 more than I was making. And it was like a punch in the gut for me because i felt as though i had totally undervalued myself mm-hmm. and that then getting the raise getting the big raise that would get me the salary that i should have been making was going to be a huge negotiation because of course once you're in a job your salary's pretty set it's much harder to change it up and so i looked back on that moment as sort of a touchstone going forward that I wish that I had had those numbers at my disposal. I wish I'd known what to ask for, because the person who's hiring you, of course, they're looking at the bottom line. They don't want to pay necessarily more than, than they, they have, have to. to. Exactly. And if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. So in retrospect, I'd really wished that I had done some research, that I'd asked some hard questions, that I would called up people that I knew and said, look I know it's difficult to talk about, but I need a benchmark here. Please help me out. Help me know what to ask for. And it never would have occurred to me to do that at the time because it just felt too private. It
1: feels invasive to call up a friend and say, you know, how much should I be asking for when right. the friend really knows you're asking how much should I be asking
0: for, based on how much you make? Exactly, and it's funny because when I think about my girlfriends, you know, my really close friends, all of whom have um, jobs, be they big or small, we will talk about our kids, we'll talk about our husbands, we'll talk about when we were dating. We talked about everything, mm-hmm. honestly. But the subject of money almost never comes up. It's the last taboo. And I think especially for women, where you can't necessarily work on the assumption that you're going to get paid what you should be getting paid, you need to have that transparency. I mean, fortunately, I work in an industry, the magazine industry is filled with women. And um, I feel like in other industries, it's probably even more difficult it's even more shadowy Um, but so that really taught me a lesson and then fast forward several years I was leaving that magazine and the woman who was going to be taking my job was someone that I was friendly with and we were talking about the ins and the outs of that position and what the hours were like and responsibilities and that sort of thing And I could tell that she was hesitating about talking about the financial piece of it. So I sat her down and I said, look, I'm going to tell you what I get paid so you can go and ask for the same thing. So I did. And it had been after, you know, a two-year-long negotiation to get paid more. And I'd finally been in a salary spot where I felt good, not great, maybe, but it was it was a decent sum. And... I'll never forget how grateful she was, because it really did give her insight into what she should be asking for. And she asked for it, and she got it. They had the money in the budget. There's no reason that she shouldn't have gotten it, but she wouldn't have gotten it if she hadn't asked. And how did you feel giving her that information? I felt great about it, honestly. You know... I mean, the other thing about revealing how much you make is that you don't know what other people's expectations are. So she could well have thought that it was an insanely low sum, in which case she's prepared for that, too. I mean, you have to sort of get over your embarrassment about your own finances. It's not just... Opening the dialogue, it's it's stripping yourself bare mm-hmm. on that level, too. Yeah, I mean, I've had some of
1: these discussions with friends. I, I do a lot of public speaking mm-hmm. and um, and rates in the world of public speaking are you, you should have a rate. You should have a set rate. And I have set rates on the East Coast and the West Coast because I sort of judge it by how much time I have to spend on a plane. And. I have shared them with friends of mine who are looking to make their way in the speaking circuit and, you know, telling them that they should ask for more or I get this and they feel like that's too low. It's often a hard conversation, I feel, from my end because sometimes I'm embarrassed that I get paid what is, you know, certainly not Hillary Clinton money, but for me it's, you know, a nice amount of money to – go out and and talk for an hour. Mm -hmm. And other times I feel frustrated that I don't make as much money as Susie Orman. So, you know, there we go. It just, (laughs) it is a hard conversation to ask. So how do you think we can make it easier for ourselves to um, just open the floodgates and encourage women to have this numbers bearing conversation?
0: I think part of it is just getting into the habit of it. I mean, in choosing your audience. So let's start with getting into the habit of it. I had worked with another woman fairly recently who was going to a different publication in a totally different role. And when she was talking to me about, well, you know, what kind of responsibilities do I want to have? Where do I see myself in five years? How much work will I be doing? How much travel will I be doing? And I said, again look, you should get paid for this kind of work because you're going to be on the road a lot. It's going to be a job with a high risk of burnout. It's a big job. It's a public job. And I told her what I was making at the time. And I said, I feel like this should be your ballpark. Maybe you want to ask for more, but I feel like this is kind of where you need to be living at this point. And again, she she actually reached out to me about a year after that, and she said, I just had the money conversation with a friend. She said, it was super inspiring to do it with you. It helped me with my negotiation. I had another friend who I knew was asking for another job, and I told her what I made, and it gave her a benchmark. And again, it's just kind of paying it forward almost. Starting the conversation, I mean, I would never talk about my salary with someone who is much more junior than I am. Or somebody who worked for me. I mean, there you know, there are things that you wouldn't do, obviously. I mean, and it's it's sort of figuring out what your comfort level is. But even if you only have the chance to have that conversation a couple of times, it shows to the person that you're talking to that it's it's helpful, and maybe they'll pay it forward and do it for somebody else. So essentially, what you're suggesting, and I, I think it's a revolutionary idea, actually,
1: is. An intimate conversation with somebody you are helping for whatever reason, and it's a one-on-one thing. It's not a six women in a room.
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that it's – and maybe that's just me. I mean, I feel as though it is a little bit of an intimate conversation. It is a little bit private, and you don't necessarily want to shout it from the rooftops, although maybe we'll get to a point where we can and we will. I mean – for me, that's worked best, and it's picking and choosing those moments. But, again, the the sort of North Star for me has been looking back on this one moment that I wish somebody had done the same thing for me and then keeping that in the back of my mind and finding people to help in the same way. Put on a different hat for me for a
1: second. You also manage a staff of largely women. Yes. How will you feel if they start having this conversation among
0: themselves? Uh, well, that's, you know, that's a trickier question. Um, there is a somewhat famous story amongst um, some editors that I know of kind of mid level editor who had all of the assistants at her then magazine tell each other what they made they all had hurt feelings for various reasons they all complained to their bosses it was ju- it was sort of an it was like she was almost pitting them against each other so there's that on the one hand you don't necessarily want everybody on a team to know everybody else's dollar amount because i feel as though that opens that opens the door a little bit to to an unhealthy kind of competition and to um, something that's potentially destructive. So it's a little bit of a, it's a tricky question. I don't honestly know the right answer to it. I feel as though um, people get hired at different salary levels for different reasons sometimes and you give merit raises because someone's done an amazing job and you want to reward them. And money does speak to how much you're valued Within an organization, but, you know, there are other things that speak to how you're valued as well. Your responsibilities, your hours, your vacation, there are other things in that package. Or how afraid the organization is that they're going to lose you. I, yes. I, I had an
1: experience once with a guy who was my boss at the time, who's now your boss. He runs mm-hmm. Hearst, Um, Steve Schwartz. He was my editor at Smart Money Magazine, and I wanted a raise, and I went in and made the case that I deserved a raise because I was doing X, Y, and Z work, and he said, I'd love to give you one, but I can't because I have to be able to defend it to my boss. So go get another offer and come back, mm-hmm. and then I can give you a raise. Right. And I eventually did go get another offer and came back, and I got a raise, and I felt kind of bad about that, yeah. um, that I was out shopping
0: for a job that I had no intention of taking. Right, and then, of course, there's the risk that you go out shopping for a job and you find something better out there and they lose you. So there's that too. Um, I certainly have been in that position. I think earlier in my career, there were a couple of moments where I went out job shopping because I wanted to raise where I currently was. And the first time it worked. And the second time, my then boss, who was totally brilliant and fair, said, you know, it looks like you really want another job. You should totally take it. And I did. And it was a job that I was happy to have all's well that ends well. But that wasn't the response that I was expecting. But I think that she looked down the line and thought, like, every year and a half back, she's going to come with another job offer. And I don't have the I don't have the room to move here. Um, so it is, you know, that can sometimes work, but you have to be willing. If you walk in with a job offer, you've got to be willing to, to hit the road if
1: but it is true what you said earlier that if you want to make more money sometimes you have to up and leave. I mean that yeah. when you look at the statistics of people getting paid more job hopping especially in your youth is is kind of the only way to get the bigger raises. Yeah.
0: I think that's definitely true.
1: Let me just take a sec to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Meredith Rollins, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, including when you're looking for that next new career or that raise. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. I don't think our listeners, they, they certainly know Redbook, but I don't know that they know all that much about you and you are fascinating. So <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> tell everybody Meredith is the, um, she's a, she's an entrepreneur on the side and the owner of, co-owner of a place called the White Hart Inn in Salisbury, Connecticut. When I first joined Smart Money Magazine, we had a story on owning a country inn. And the editors at the time had this thing in their brains where they liked to do stories on things that you would think would be fabulous adventures and then just show how tough they actually were. <laughs> I wish I'd seen that article before we bought the inn. And so, um yeah, there was a story about a couple who owned an inn and how how much of a nightmare it had become for them. I was out at the White Hart. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. I know that you own it. The chef, mm-hmm. whose name is Annie Waite. Yes. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is a co-owner, your husband. Yes. Tell me, how did this happen?
0: Well, it was it was a little bit of a lark, which is never how you want to get into the hospitality industry. For those of you out there who are ever thinking about doing it, um, call me and I'll try to talk you out of it. But it's... We were looking at real estate listings, and we've had a house in Northwest Connecticut for a long time. My parents are there. Um, Our boys love being there. They do all their sports there, and we're just part of the community. And we realized that this inn, which we'd sort of forgotten about, honestly, two towns over, right on the town green, a beautiful historic place, had been on the market at that point for about three years. And my husband, who um, works in finance, was thinking, well, you know, let's just take a look at it, just sort of as a as a lark, really, more than anything. And so we went and we took a tour of it, and it had just been renovated about a year and a half before they put it on the market. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was kind of turnkey and great. And we started talking to friends about it. And the more friends we talked to about it, the more people got excited about it. So now there are 10 co-owners, Um None of whom are nearly as involved as we are in its operation. And really, I have to give most of the credit to my husband because he has really rolled up his sleeves and, you know, was there the summer before we opened, tearing out old banquettes and installing sinks. And it's really. Become a hobby for him. But um, having Annie Waite as the chef made all the difference because she had run a couple of big restaurants in New York City beforehand. And so she really knew what it took to have a great restaurant. And now we have an amazing managerial staff. Um, And that was, you know, a little bit in fits and starts, too, finding the right people. But It's been an adventure. And I think the best thing about it, honestly, for me, is the fact that it's the heart of this tiny town in Connecticut. And so we do things out on the town green on Memorial Day. There's an ice cream social that happens there. The parade goes right by. It's really charming, especially when you meet people who, you know, had their prom there in the 1940s or who got married there in the 1960s. And are so grateful to have it open again. You said if anybody's thinking about it they should call you
1: and you'll talk them out of
0: it. So so this all sounds bucolic, but does, tell us it what it's really like. Well, you know, it's one of those things, and again, I'm not nearly as in the weeds of it as as my husband is, but you know, they're finding people to work there has been tricky. You know, things that go wrong. Dishes that don't sell. There was a a person who was staying there who drove his car into one of the rooms by accident. You know, it's (laughs) just, it really, it feels a little bit like... you know remember the show New Heart it's a little bit yes. yeah it's a little like that where you just sort of think like well what what's going to what's what new challenge awaits us and if you deal with it with a sense of humor and know that you have great people there and it keeps growing and and people seem really happy with it so so it is it's 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 fun our boys um know everybody who works there and run around like two tiny Eloises is it a good investment Is it a good investment? You know, you have to really take the long view about anything like that. The startup costs are very high. You know, you have to give yourself room to fail a little bit at the beginning. I think that's true with probably any small business is that you have to have enough of a cushion to be able to um, take some risks and take chances and and have things not work out. Um, Is this your retirement plan? No, although every once in a while I think, you know, we could just turn that into the most beautiful retirement home and just get a bunch of our friends and live there. Um, but, um, (laughs) I don't know. We'll see where it is in whatever it is, 40 years when we're, where we're thinking about retiring, but. Mm -hmm. You run a magazine that gives advice to women about
1: how to create a, a full, robust life. And you've got it yourself with The in your editor-in-chief of a, a big magazine. You've got two boys under the age of 10. How do you define it? And mm-hmm. and how do you accomplish it?
0: You know, I think, honestly, the best way to find balance is to give up any hope of ever having balance. I mean, it just... For me, it's too elusive. There are days when I'm a great editor-in-chief. Um, There are days when... I'm a great mom. There are days when I'm a a great wife. There are days when I'm a great daughter, great friend, but they're almost never all on the same day. And I think that one of the things we really focus on with Red Book is to allow women to sort of embrace that chaos and to understand that they're never going to be hitting 10 on everything all the time. That You just have to learn to forgive yourself, to let things go, to understand that not all of it is important, that some of the stuff that you think is just so key. I mean, every holiday season rolls around and I think I want the house to look fantastic and it's Always a nightmare and then it's covered in, you know, wrapping paper and then the holidays over. So I I just have realized it's one of those things that I'm never going to really I'm never gonna nail that. I'm never gonna be the kind of mom who makes an amazing dinner, family dinner every night. Family dinner for me is this elusive dream. Instead, we have family breakfast, and that's sort of good enough. And it's cold cereal. I mean, it's not even like great gourmet family breakfast. It's out of a box. But that's okay. And so really, I think that that's the key thing is just understanding that you're not going to be able to be all things to all people. And you're not going to be able to be all things to yourself either, probably. Cut yourself some slack. I mean, when we put the magazine together, one of the things that we say to each other, and it's... As you said, sort of a staff of mostly women, some great men, too, also with kids and some without. But we sort of, we truth test everything. It's like, can you really get these recipes done in the amount of time that you'd want to spend on a recipe? Can you really wear this outfit to work? Is this really going to look flattering on you? Is this hairstyle going to take you 45 minutes? Because nobody has 45 minutes to do their hair. And for the money content, you know, a lot of it is about dealing with your emotions around money and realizing that it's okay to not know the answer to the question. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to baby step your way way into feeling confident with your finances because the bottom line is you've got to feel confident you have to be prepared but you don't have to get there all in one day and you don't have to feel embarrassed about what you don't know so again it's that mix that you see in the magazine which is all about kind of letting go of some of the details But it's mixed with this feeling of you can be confident even in your imperfect life. You can be confident and happy and fulfilled even if you're not getting it all right all the time.
1: I think that's a great way to end it. And I hope that you'll write your next editor's letter about the intimate money conversation because I really think it's brilliant.
0: Thank you. You And
1: thanks for letting me come and talk about it. Sure. Absolutely. And I hope you'll come back again soon. So we are going to take some of your questions. Kelly is in the studio with me. Hi Kelly. Hi Jean. Questions coming in? We do. Wingwoman on Twitter. Fun handle. Yeah. Says, hi Jean Chatsky, single working 40 something mom looking for a good credit card to build my own history. Where do I start? Hashtag what the 40? <laughs> You gotta love that. You can start essentially with any good list of credit cards out there. Card Hub, Bankrate, any of those websites that maintain lists of credit cards is is a fine place to start. Low Cards is another one. But let me just tell you what you're looking for in those cards. You're looking for a Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, i.e. not a store credit card. And you have to ask yourself a couple of questions about how you're going to use this card in order to figure out what card is best for you. So if you are going to carry a balance on this card, which, of course, I don't recommend. I'd rather see you just use it, pay it off, use it, pay it off, use it, pay it off. You get the idea. Um, If you're going to carry a balance at any point in time, then the interest rate matters, and you want to look for a card with as low an interest rate as possible, and you should be able to find that in a card that also has no annual fee. If, on the other hand, you're going to use this card and you're going to do a lot of your spending on the card and then just pay it off so that you don't have to worry about paying interest, I'd look for a card that has good bonus points or miles or cash back and You can ask yourself what you want. A lot of people collect frequent flyer miles and then never use them, which is a waste of time and energy and money. If you know that you're not going to use those kind of rewards, then just go for the cash back and and look at the Chase Sapphire line of cards is a good line of cards. The Capital One Venture Card, if you want miles, is a good card. And there are many, many others. Now, when we hear about building credit history, we're often talking to college graduates, right? So I'm wondering, is she going to run into some of the same potential hiccups as in not being qualified for a credit card? Do you think she'll have to get a secured card? She may have to get a secured card. If you have absolutely no credit history, and you should pull your credit score to essentially figure it out, then you may find yourself having to get a secured credit card, which is a credit card where you deposit a certain amount of money, generally a few hundred dollars, with the issuing bank. That becomes your credit limit, and you use that card and pay it off in eventually 18 or 24 months down the road. That card will generally turn into a plain vanilla credit card. I know I directed you to an assortment of websites that maintain lists of credit cards, but go to cardhub.com because Cardhub in their listing will tell you if you've got good credit, fair credit, exceptional credit, which cards you generally will be able to qualify for, and that'll just save you some time and energy. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Well, thank you, Wingwoman. And our next question is from Kelly. Great name. Yeah. Yes. I have a student loans for our son of $84,000 at an 8.5% interest rate, which was mandated by Congress. What institution can I go to for a much lower rate to pay these notes? So interest rates right now are substantially lower than 8.5%. And Kelly, assuming that your credit is decent and... Just like Wingwoman, you want to go ahead and you want to check your credit score, check your credit report before you go through the process of refinancing this debt. And you can check your credit score for free at SavvyMoney.com. You can check your credit report for free at AnnualCreditReport.com. But there are a number of institutions that will work with you um, to bring down the interest rate, particularly on student loans. Among them, you can look at SoFi which will refinance. Citizens Bank is big in the market to refinance. Common Bond is big in the market to refinance. It will depend on your credit rating, on your employment status. They're looking at a number of different factors when refinancing. There's a website called magnifymoney.com that maintains a list of the folks in the market, particularly to refi credit card debt. If you happen to be a member of a credit union, I would definitely check with them as well. Great. Thank you, Jean. Oh, sure. Thanks. And keep the questions coming. You can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and at jeanchatsky.com. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much for sending in your questions. Please keep them coming. We're going to turn the corner now with a little bit of news you can use. In our Thrive segment this week, we're talking about student aid. In particular, we're talking about the FAFSA. You parents out there and some of you students probably already know what FAFSA is, but it stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and it is probably the most important piece of paper you will fill out this fall. This year, it'll be out October 1st, and the rule of the road is don't delay. We don't know yet whether schools will be moving up their own aid deadlines. It's possible that they will, particularly those schools with rolling admissions, but you don't have to wait until January anymore for your taxes to be done. You can use the two prior years' tax information to fill out the form. The IRS even has a helpful tool to allow you to just download that tax information right into the FAFSA. And the hope is that if you can get on it and file your form between October and December, rather than waiting until the spring, you'll be able to see any need-based aid plus merit aid at all of your accepted schools and make a decision based on value. So, Here's what I want you to do. As I said, don't delay. File the FAFSA ASAP. Second, as you go to take out student loans, remember federal first private second. There are a number of reasons that you want to exhaust your federal aid eligibility before even dipping a toe into the private pool, including the fact that they're usually cheaper, but they also have provisions on the back end that make repaying your loans easier and more flexible, like income-based repayment that caps your payment based on your income. If you do decide to take the private loan route, I want you to explore some new discounts. Wells Fargo, for example, has teamed up with Amazon Prime and is offering Amazon Prime student members. Prime, by the way, costs $49 for students each year. They're offering a half a percentage point discount, which can be applied on top of other discounts, and that can be meaningful. Discover is offering a one-time 1% cash back payment on each student loan if you maintain a three-point GPA or better. And finally, Sally Mae has a new program where if you pay either all or part of the interest on your loans while you're in school, you'll save either a half a percentage point or a full percentage point in interest, which again, That's a big deal. Okay, just a quick recap. You can file the FAFSA earlier this year, and you should. Go for federal dollars first when you're borrowing, then private. And if you do, go the private route. Look to new discounts offered by some of the big financial services players. And I hope you find that helpful. Thanks so much for listening to us today. I want to thank all of our listeners for sending us questions. Keep them coming. Please share the show with your friends, with your sisters, with your mothers, with your colleagues. We're getting great reviews, but we'd love to see more of them. As always, our thanks go to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX, and we'll talk soon.